Well, let's pray. Father, thank you again for our time this morning. Thank you that we can come together and open your word. Thank you that you have given us your spirit to illuminate our hearts and our minds and understanding and that we can begin through the power of the spirit to put into practice the things that we learn. So use your word upon our hearts and souls. Father, if there are those among us who do not know Christ, may their hearts hear of Jesus Christ and the glory of salvation in Him alone. And for those here who know Christ already, may what we hear today become a motivation, a, 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 a drive upon our heart to do what You have asked of us. We thank You for that. In Christ's name, Amen. Well, I'll ask you to take your Bibles with me and turn in them again to our study of the Gospel of Luke. We had a great opportunity this week with the men to study several different passages with Dr. Dorn as he was here for our men's conference. That has been recorded. It'll be on our website if you want to listen to those again, or if you were unable to be here and you wanted to hear those, you'll be able to do that. But it was a great time just to be exhorted by him on the issue of purity for our own spiritual lives, our own lives as men, but also just our Christian lives in general. And really it was encapsulating some of the outworking of really what we're talking about here in Luke chapter 6 about what is a Christian the outworking in our life as to what a Christian is. I did something this week in my study for our time this morning, and that was that I went onto the internet and I put in the question that I have been asking over the last several weeks, what is a Christian? Well, as you could imagine, there was a whole host of answers that came up from our illustrious society around us. Some were Good. Some were not so good. Most simply spoke of some kind of relational aspect to Jesus or with Jesus, at least the idea of Jesus in some kind of way. There were even others that mentioned the idea of repentance, and that was refreshing to find the idea of repentance found when you ask that question about what is a Christian, but what I did not find in any of the explanations were the qualities that Jesus speaks about here in Luke chapter 6 that we have been looking at over the last several weeks. Those qualities that belong to those who are in the kingdom of God, i.e. the Christian. To be a Christian is to be in the kingdom of God. Jesus clearly makes that statement in his teaching. In John's gospel, in John chapter 3 and verses 3 through 5, which is a smaller part of a larger section in which Jesus is having a conversation with one who came to him from the nation of Israel, one who happened to be the teacher in Israel. There wasn't anybody who had a higher position in Israel by way of the religious community than this man, a Pharisee named Nicodemus. And Nicodemus had come to Jesus Christ in John chapter 3 in the cloak of darkness in order to inquire about who Jesus was. 
And Jesus responds to Nicodemus with these words. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. In other words, without the new birth, without being brought into the kingdom of God by Jesus Christ, without being a true Christian, you cannot even understand the kingdom of God. You can't see it. It's, it's in essence, invisible to you. It's not there. It's, it's not something you can understand. It's not something you can see. Why? You're blinded to it. Why? Because you're still in sin. You're still in the old self. And Jesus goes on to say in verse 5 of that same chapter, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. So you cannot see it. You certainly cannot enter into it. So without spiritual birth, there is no spiritual sight. And there will be no seeing of the kingdom in glory without spiritual sight. Because to see the kingdom, you have to be in the kingdom. And to be in the kingdom, you must be born again. So to be a Christian is to be in the kingdom of God. You cannot be a Christian. You cannot rightly Assume in your own life that you are a Christian and not be in the kingdom of God. If you're not in the kingdom of God, you are not a Christian. Therefore, implying to be a Christian and be outside the kingdom of God is a fallacy. It is a lie. It's an impossibility. And therefore, Jesus here in Luke chapter 6 is implying and saying clearly that to be a Christian, one is poor, hungry, crying, and hated. Doesn't sound very appealing. Doesn't sound very health, wealth, prosperity language. How is that the implication? Because that's what Jesus is teaching. Jesus, the same Jesus who speaks in John chapter 3, is the same Jesus who speaks here in Luke chapter 6. The Christian is a poor, hungry, crying, hated person. Christianity is made up of a group of people that are poor, hungry, crying, and hated. Not one explanation that I found on the internet about what is a Christian mentioned any of that. Many of them mentioned all this good stuff that comes with Christianity, and we might agree with some of those things that they mentioned, but none of them mentioned this. It appears within Christendom today evangelicalism at large, that we only think on a level of how to be a Christian rather than the what of Christianity. Far too often we think too much about 
how it is that someone is to be a Christian, and we ought to be thinking about that. We ought to be thinking about evangelism and talking to people about Jesus Christ. After all, we are exhorted, even in 1 Peter, to be able to give a defense for the hope that lies within us. We ought to be able to say to someone, it is Jesus Christ in whom I have my hope. And yet, we don't often talk about after that the what is a Christian. This was often the problem even with some of the crusades in our country's history and world's history. They would talk a lot about the how, and people would come forward and make some decision for how, and yet they would be left there with none of the what. And I believe that is a telling reality that when we think of Christianity, we need to think about the what. Maybe even more than we think about the how. Because we can talk about the how when someone becomes a Christian, we should never leave them without the what. Because the what is what Jesus is talking about here in this passage. And he begins by describing a stark contrast between those in the kingdom and those outside the kingdom. And it isn't necessarily talking about how to get in, although that is here implied in the text. He has already mentioned some of those things. It's through Him. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. There's this repentance that must take place. There's a repentance, a turning from sin to Christ. That's that's the entrance into, just like John 3, you must be born again. And yet there's an outflow, there's there's a heart of those who are kingdom citizens. And Jesus is contrasting here, particularly in the first six verses of beginning in verse 20, down to verse 26, the contrast between those inside and those who are outside. Those who are inside the kingdom are poor, hungry, crying, and as we will see today, they are hated. But those who are outside the kingdom are rich, well-fed, laughing, and liked by all men. Let's once again just hear the words that Luke has recorded for us as Jesus is speaking, turning his gaze on his disciples, verse 20. He began to say, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when men hate you, and ostracize you, and cast insults at you, and spurn your name as evil for the sake of the Son of Man. Be glad in that day, and leap for joy. For behold, your reward is great in heaven, for in the same way their fathers used to treat the prophets. But woe to you who are rich! You are receiving your comfort in full. Woe to you who are well fed now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, 
for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all men speak well of you, for in the same way their fathers used to treat the false prophets. Now as we look at this passage, none of us, had we had the choice in our own humanity, none of us would have picked the description of life that Jesus lays out for those that he lists in the category of those being blessed. None of us would have, had we given the option, here's one group of people, they are going to be the poor, the hungry, the crying, and the hated people, and these are going to be those who are rich, well-fed, they are laughing, and they are well-loved by everybody. Which group do you want to be in? None of us would have chosen the group that Jesus highlights here as the blessed group. We wouldn't have done that. Why? Because we don't want life like that in our flesh. We don't like those things. Our flesh wants the other side. Our flesh wants the rich, the well-filled, the non-sad, liked-by-everybody kind of life. All of us, if we are thinking clearly in our own humanity and honestly, without having our Christian eyes working, we have said, we would have said that true blessings are found in the other group, not in the group that Jesus mentions as blessed. Why would we have said that? Because if one removes the stain of sin, if you look at it after removing the stain of sin, then that is true. If there's no sin, then the life that is only for the here and now is the only life we have. And if the life here is the only life we have, then surely we want the rich, well-fed, laughing, liked by all life. If God is not in the picture, if there is no God, get all you can now because tomorrow ushers in the end of the road. This is what our society strives for. But for the Christian, there is this issue called sin. All men have it, yet all men other than the true Christian deny it. Or at least they try to say it in a simpler way that it can be dealt with in other ways. Yet for the Christian, there is this issue of sin. There is the inescapable reality that evil is not just outside of us, but evil lurks in the depths of our very soul. And unless it is dealt with, even if we are rich, even if we are filled with abundance, even if we are laughing our way through life and we are liked by all, the reality is we are still unhappy, we are lost, and we will end up in hell. The reality is that without considering sin, the only thing left is not blessing at all. The only thing left is cursing. This is what Jesus says. Woe to you who are rich. Woe to you who are well fed now. 
Woe to you when all men speak well of you. Woe to you who laugh now. Cursed are you. Woe. It's, it's an exclamation of grief. It, it's an exclamation of, of pain, of, of wait a minute, this isn't what I thought was going to happen. Whoa, wait, hold on, stop the train. It's, a, it, it's speaking primarily of a spiritual condition, even though it looks as if it's speaking of a physical condition. In fact, go back for a moment to the book of Matthew. I just want to kind of walk through a few passages so we can see this used in the words of the Gospels. This word woe as it's translated in the English language. We begin in Matthew chapter 11. Jesus, again, throughout his ministry, continued to pronounce this reality upon those who who thought in and of themselves they could attain to some kind of spiritual high point whereby God would be pleased with them on their own. Speaking to the people, in verse 20 of Matthew chapter 11, he says, beginning to reproach the cities in which most of his miracles were done, Why? Because they did not repent. Remember, the miracles of Jesus authenticated the very reality of His authority to do everything and to forgive sin. He had the authority to forgive sin. They saw these things. They denied these things. They rejected Him. Why? Because He wasn't fulfilling all their physical desires that they wanted. They thought that in that was life. And Jesus comes along and says, no, no, no. I came to save sinners. They would not repent. And so what does Jesus say? Verse 21, here it is. Curse to you, Chorazin. Woe to you. Woe to you, Bethsaida. Because if the miracles had occurred in Gentile cities, Tyre and Sidon, cities to the north, if the Gentiles had seen what you saw and what occurred in you, they would have repented. But it's going to be more tolerable for them verse 22, in the day of judgment, then for you, Capernaum, you're not going to be exalted to heaven. You're going to descend to Hades for if miracles had occurred in you, Sodom, Sodom would have remained to this day. Shocking. It's going to be more tolerable for the land of Sodom. Sodom is a burning ember, coals in the ground, dust. It's going to be more more tolerable for that? That's more tolerable than what is to come because you reject Jesus Christ? Yes. Over to Matthew 18. Matthew 18. Jesus, once again, talking about the kingdom of heaven. They're arguing about the greatest in the kingdom. Jesus comes along, talks about that. He calls his child to himself in verse 2, sets him before him. I say to you, unless you are converted and become like a child. In other words, your faith is such that when God says it, you believe it. That's what a child does with a parent. Parent says it, a child, new child, a young child believes it. Yeah, my dad said it. My mom said it. It's got to be true. 
This is the faith we have in God. You shall even not enter the kingdom of heaven if you don't have that kind of faith. Whoever then humbles himself as this child, he's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives such a child in my name receives me, but whoever causes one of these little ones to believe that believe in me to stumble, it's better for him that a heavy millstone be hung around his neck and that you be drowned in the depths of the sea. Notice verse 7, Woe to the world because of its stumbling blocks. The world is a, is a cursed place. Why? Because there's, there's all kinds of places that, that are stumbling blocks to those who... who that Satan has out there that, that, that hinder people. Because it's inevitable that stumbling blocks come, but woe to that man through whom that stumbling block comes. You better watch yourself. Woe to you. Verse 11, For the Son of Man has come to save that which was lost. And then, of course, Matthew chapter 20. Three, that great eschatological end times diatribe of Jesus Christ when he exposes the heart of the self-righteous. Beginning in verse 13, Woe to you, scribes and you Pharisees, hypocrites! Why? Because you shut off the kingdom of heaven from men. You don't even enter in yourselves, nor will you even allow those who, who are entering to go in. Woe, verse 14, to you scribes and you Pharisees, you hypocrites. Why? Because you devour widows' houses. You take whatever widows have. Even while there's a pretense, you make long prayers, and therefore you shall receive greater condemnation. Verse 15, woe to you. Verse 16, woe to you. Verse 23, woe to you, scribes, you Pharisees, hypocrites. Why? Because you tithe mint and dill and cumin. You've neglected, though, the weightier provisions of the law. You, you have this outward showiness that seems to, you think that in doing those things you're righteous, but the, but the inward things of the heart, you, you have no desire with justice, mercy, faithfulness. You should have done those things without neglecting others. You're blind guides, he says. Woe to you, verse 25, you scribes, you Pharisees. Verse 27, woe to you. Verse 28 or 29, woe to you. Constant, curse to you, curse to you, curse to you. Whoa, stop the train. This is nonsense. You can't think for a moment that in your own righteousness you're going to enter into the kingdom of God. This is what Jesus is saying in Luke chapter 6. Woe to you who think that in your riches or in your wellness or in your filling up or in your lack of weeping or in your idea that, hey, I'm accepted by all men. Woe to you if you think you're okay. To be satisfyingly justified with what you have in this life and who you are in this life, in your own life, with the abundant supply that you've kind of seemingly think that you've given to your life to be satisfyingly happy with the earth, with the things of the temporal, the shallow joys of this earth, to think that being liked by all is the pinnacle of existence, is to actually... Be in the realm of unblessing. In fact, it is to be under the curse of God. 
Why? Because life is not about the temporal. Life is about the eternal. It is about the internal, not the external. Why is that curse so bad? Because there is coming a day when the things that you believe have been avoided, you think you've avoided mourning, you think you've avoided the need for something, you think you have avoided the ridicule of the world, the ridicule in your life, you think you have avoided all of those things by your riches and your, your lavish life and who you are by laughing, your jovial life and all of these kinds of things because all men like you. You think you've avoided all of those things that that Jesus has mentioned in just the first verses, the poor, the hungry, the, the weeping, the hated. You think you have avoided those? Well, guess what? One day your greatest want will come and it will not be able to be fulfilled. We heard it this morning, even in our Sunday school class, in the adult Sunday school class from Luke chapter 16. A rich man sitting in Hades wanting his greatest need to be met, wanting those who would come after him to have the knowledge and understanding of their greatest need, needing to be met, the need about their sin. And in the parable, Abraham says they have the law and the prophets. They have the Word of God. Let them listen to the Word of God So Jesus says, woe to you who are rich, for you're receiving your comfort in full. You think that in your life and in your riches, in your own heart and in your own life, that's the reality of who you are, that you have attained. Guess what? You're receiving your comfort in full. The day will come when you want comfort and you will not find it. Woe to you who are well fed now, for you shall be hungry. There will be a hunger in you that will never be quenched. It will never go away because in your life now you think that you don't need to hunger for anything in Christ. You think you are your own satisfaction. Woe to you who laugh. You're jovial now. There's no trouble in your life. You think that life is going just as you have planned it. Well, there's coming a day when you will mourn and weep and it will not stop. But I live in a world where all men love me. I, I, I have a popularity. Everybody is liking me. There's coming a day for you when all those who like you will be with you because in the same way their fathers used to treat the false prophets. Don't be deceived for the Christian. What defines them is not the temporal outside things. What defines the Christian is the inside. The area where sin is rooted. And therefore, the blessed are those who are spiritually poor, spiritually hungry, spiritually crying, 
and therefore they're hated by the world. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit. We've looked at this over the last several weeks. They are, they are those who come to Christ knowing they have nothing to offer to Christ, knowing they need everything from Christ, all the mercy of God upon them because they know they have nothing to offer. They are bankrupt of self-effort. They are poor. They know they cannot do anything to save themselves. Those that come that way receive the blessings from God. God brings them into the kingdom of God. Of course, we understand it's not without repentance. Jesus has said that already in chapter 5. Repentance happens. Repentance is a turning from sin to God. You don't come to God without a recognition of sin. So the bankrupt of spirit come. Jesus It is those for whom is the kingdom of God, he says. For yours is the kingdom of God. Not, not, hey, listen, attach yourself to Jesus and one day you'll be in the kingdom of God. For certain, Jesus will bring the kingdom about in in a functioning reality as we understand the Scriptures. But we are in the kingdom now. Why? Because we are in the King. The kingdom of God is for the poor in spirit. Because Jesus came to save sinners, not the righteous. Being born again is the entry point into the kingdom. And only those who are righteous are in the kingdom. And since only those who are righteous are in the kingdom, then it must be a righteousness that is not our own. It takes righteousness to get in the kingdom and you don't have righteousness enough to get into the kingdom. Then if you are in the kingdom and you have a righteousness to get into the kingdom, it's not your righteousness. Because the king didn't come to bring into the kingdom those who are convinced that they are righteous in themselves. I did not come to call the righteous. So the only way to have the righteousness of the kingdom is to embrace the reality that you are not righteous in and of yourselves. In fact, you come poor in spirit. You come poor and you come hungry. Blessed are you who hunger now. Verse 21. Blessed are you who hunger now. The Christian is one who comes to the king broke and hungry. And the king graciously, mercifully satisfies, and he satisfies fully. So not only are these descriptions of entrance into the kingdom, but there are also descriptions of qualities of heart in the kingdom. In other words, the Christian never arrives. You and I never arrive at the place where we're until glory where we're fully satisfied of, of, of striving for righteousness here, this side of heaven. We are fully satisfied in the righteousness of Christ for entry into the kingdom. God accepts the righteousness of Christ, no righteousness of our own. That enters us in, and in the kingdom we desire righteously. We desire to live righteously. 
And so we are hungering for righteousness. In fact, that's exactly how Matthew says it, or Jesus says it in Matthew's gospel, hungering and thirsting for righteousness. And Jesus always satisfies. Jesus is always satisfying. Why? Because his word is sufficient. And that follows then, thirdly, as we saw last Lord's Day, that the Christian is not one who is comfortable with sin at any level. Christian is not one who is comfortable with sin at any level. That's why Jesus said, Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. The paradox. Paradox is striking. They all are striking as we think about them because it is those who weep who shall laugh. Or as Matthew's Gospel says it, they shall be comforted. Comforted. That is simply to say that wherever there is godly sorrow, there is laughter that follows. Why? Because weeping is a sign of pain. Weeping is a sign of grief. Weeping is a sign of, 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 of deep sorrow. And therefore, in the grief over sin as a, as a believer, we understand that in Christ, all my sin has been paid for. It is the, the judgment of sin, the final judgment upon sin has been paid for in Christ. And in that weeping, there is great joy. That even though I sin now, there is still forgiveness in Christ. And so while I'm, I'm despondent in my own heart about my sinfulness, the reality is when I look to Christ, there is great joy. We cry out like the thief on the cross, remember me in your kingdom. And Jesus says, today you will be with me in paradise. So the weeping and the laughter show the extremes of the contrast. In other words, these are the effects in us that come to Christ because of sin and because of guilt and the corresponding forgiveness and freedom in Christ that enraptures our heart with joy. This is the settledness that we have even though we're in Christ. Even though we sin. Nothing ought to make you and I as Christians more joyful than to understand that our forgiveness has been accomplished. Has been accomplished. On the cross and the effects go on forever. Our forgiveness has been accomplished. Without that, there is no comfort to be had. What we know as absolute truth from the Word of God, that we have been, as Paul says in Colossians 1, we have been delivered from the domain of darkness and have been transferred into the kingdom of His dear Son. There was a divine transfer that took place. A transfer that can never go back. Should, that should uplift our life like nothing else. Even though we sin. 
It's not a get out of jail free card, go ahead and sin all you want, don't worry about it. No, no, no. It is the reality that when we do sin, Christ is forgiving and we turn from that sin and we run to Christ and joy floods our heart. Why? Because there's coming a day when all of this sin and all the remnants of this sin will be fully gone. And in the kingdom that is coming, there will be no evil. There will be no sin. There will be no thought of sin. And oh, what laughing there will be. So Jesus says, blessed are those who weep now, for you will laugh. But if you're laughing now, your day of weeping will come. You shall, verse 25, weep and mourn. And in that day you will find no relief. There will be no relief. If you think, ha, look at those people, they're such a pity because they think about their life, they look at their life and they understand they have a a relationship with a holy God and because of their sin there's this this rift that goes on between their relationship with God. Even those Christians who know God, there's this, this rift that needs to be dealt with. We need to run to God. We need to confess our sin. We need to repent from our sin and there's forgiveness there. And woe to you people who do that. You're just a bunch of morons. Let me just laugh at you. Ha, look at me. I'm living my life up. Jesus says, woe to you, friend. Woe to you who think like that. You're receiving all that you get now. But your day is coming. Your day is coming. And so we come to the final contrast. Maybe the most shocking of all, because while the first three looked at the Christian itself, this one looks at how the Christian is treated in the world around them. Jesus is just quietly, gracefully dropping these bombs of reality upon the ears of those who have come to hear him. Remember, they, they've, that's why they're here. They've come to hear Him. And Jesus, through His grace, is challenging their hearts by His words. He has removed from their life any external excuse to disregard what He is saying. And this final bomb explodes any notion of ease that they might have been hoping for. Notice verse 22. Blessed are you men, you when men hate you, ostracize you, cast insults at you, spurn your name as evil for the sake of the Son of Man. Be glad in that day. Leap for joy. Behold, your reward is great in heaven. In the same way their fathers used to treat the prophets. And of course, the corresponding other side of it, woe to you when all men speak well of you. Or in the same way their fathers used to treat the false prophets. Trust just in the hearing of those words, you notice that Jesus' words give a condition. There is a condition from which this hatred comes. In other words, it's, 
It's not. It's not that the Christian is just a person in a category of those who are hated by the greater world around them. It's not as if this is some kind of casual hatred that is out there in the world, although there is some sense in which that's the case. Satan doesn't want Jesus to succeed. And therefore, if you are in that category in which you are poor and hungry and crying because of your own sin, then being just in that category, you're blessed, and the world in this category hates you, so there's a blessing in that. That's not really what Jesus is talking about. Certainly it's true in some sense to be a Christian, even in that means in the world at large, they hate Christianity. That's not what Jesus is speaking about here. Nor is He speaking of being hated or being persecuted because you, even as a Christian, are acting in such a way that is an unchristian way of acting. Sadly, that happens. It happens in Christianity far too often. Many who claim the name of Jesus Christ are hated, they are persecuted, and they take it as a badge of honor, even though that persecution has come from not being a Christian. It's just being rude and judgmental and insensitive and thoughtless to other people. Sometimes Christians are just hated because of that. Sometimes we are rejected. Sometimes we are disliked because we are living in ways that even the world sees as lazy and irresponsible. We ought not be doing that. Peter clearly tells us that if we're going to be persecuted, we ought to be persecuted for doing godly things, not for doing things that are wrong. But both of those reasons that I talked about are not what Jesus is talking about here. Jesus adds a very clarifying phrase when He says at the end of verse 22, for the sake of the Son of Man. You're hated. You're ostracized. There are insults cast at you. Your name is spurned as evil, not because you're acting a fool, but because it's for the sake of the Son of Man. So the four verbs listed in verse 22, hate, ostracize, insult, and spurned, are qualified by this prepositional phrase at the end. That is just simply to say this, that the world around us may treat us in those ways. The question is, why? Why? Why are they? Because the only legitimate underlying reason for us as Christians to be hated, ostracized, insulted, and even denounced as evil is because of our association with Jesus Christ. We know that everyone who lives like Jesus actively and attitudinally in their life will be persecuted. We know that's the case. Why? Because Jesus even says that. John 15, 20. Remember the word that I said to you. A slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they would keep yours also. 
Sometimes we go out there and we forget that very clearly. Maybe we're living our life for Christ and, and we, we think things are going to go well. Maybe we're in the workplace and we're, we're just taking a stand for Christianity. We're taking our stand with Christ. We're, we're doing it humbly. We're doing it with, with care and concern. We're not, not being obnoxious about any of those things. And it doesn't seem that it's going very well. It seems like we're, we're being ostracized. There's people insulting us. There's people talking about us. They're, they're saying we're not the people we ought to be hanging with. We're being persecuted. Well, Jesus says, they're against me. They're going to be against you. The Apostle Paul clearly reminded Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12, Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. This is a theme running through the heart of the Apostle Paul because it was a theme in the heart of Jesus Christ wanting to warn those who follow after Him, those who are attached to Him, those who are in the kingdom, this is the reality of life here and now. Paul warns the Thessalonian believers, for you yourselves know that we are destined for this. What? Trials. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction just as it has come to pass and just as you know. The implication there is not only have we suffered it, but you have suffered it as well. Remember Ananias in Acts chapter 9? Ananias, a good, devout, even Christ-following Jew, was fearful to go and see the newly converted Paul in Acts chapter 9 because he knew that he was a violent persecutor of the church. He knew that Paul hated Christians. That was the story about Paul. That was Paul's public testimony through the life of the Apostle Paul before God converts Paul on the road to Damascus. And yet the risen Lord says to Ananias, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and before kings and before the sons of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. We know that Paul learned the lesson because he went on to tell Christians in Antioch, Acts chapter 14, verse 22, through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. So being hated because we stand for Christ is the definition of a Christian. To suffer for Christ is to be blessed. The late Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote extensively on the issue of discipleship Put it this way, quote, suffering is the badge of true discipleship. The disciple is not above his master. Discipleship means allegiance to the suffering Christ. And it is therefore not at all surprising that Christians should be called to suffer. In fact, it is a joy and a token of his grace, unquote. So as a Christian... As we live for Christ, hatred will come. We've heard this before. We ought to expect it. And those who hate will then separate from us. Sometimes it will be family. Sometimes it will be friends. Sometimes it will be 
co-workers. Sometimes it will be the very country we live in. And in doing that, they will speak slanderously about us. They will cast insults at us. They will separate. They will ostracize us. They will even equate us with those who are evil. There are cries today in our society, in America, that are saying Christianity needs to be shut up. Needs to be done away with. Why? Because we believe in Jesus. Not simply as a figure in history, not simply as some good man in the past who did some good things and set forth some kind of ethic. No, we believe in Jesus because of who He is. He is the God-man. He is the Messiah. He is the Lord of glory. He is God in the flesh. And we confess Him. We proclaim Him. We preach Christ and Him crucified. And we live like Him as His disciples. It isn't just to tell people how to know Christ. It's to show people what a Christian is. The more we reflect Jesus Christ in our lives, the more intolerable we become and the more severe the measures to try to stop us. Why? Because they want nothing to do with the Master. Now here's the reality, all of that all of that can tempt even the strongest believer to shrink and cower because of fear. All of that. But instead of fear, instead of cowering when these things happen, we are to regard the persecution as if nothing better could be happening to us. Why? Notice what Jesus says. Because... In His eyes, you are blessed. Blessed are you when men do these things with you. So once again, we're face to face at the paradox, the intersection where two things seem so contradictory. Hatred to the Christian because we bear the name of Christ and we follow Christ. That's the best thing that could ever happen to the Christian. Blessed are you. In fact, we are called here to rejoice. Be glad, verse 23, in that day. Be glad. Rejoice. In other words, be carried away in your heart, not by despair, not by forlorn attitudes and sadness. No, be carried away by an unconfined joy. The heart of the Apostle Paul is there in, or the Apostle Peter is he's in prison singing hymns even though he's sitting there in prison. You say, how? How is that possible? How is it possible for the martyr to stand there with his hands tied to the stake still singing and quoting the Scriptures as his family is marched by to watch him be burned at the stake? How can the martyr find joy in that? There's only one way. 
Jesus gives the answer here in verse 23. Be glad in that day. Leap for joy. Why? Or behold, pay attention. Look at this. Behold. Don't be dismayed. Don't be despairing. Because your reward is great in heaven. You see what Jesus is saying? All these things of this temporal world are meaningless. They don't mean anything. They're nothing. All your physical riches, all your physical abundance, all the things that puff your heart up thinking you're a self-made person that you're okay with God mean nothing. The only thing that means anything is Jesus Christ. And when you live for Christ, the world hates that because it's such a light shining on their dead world. But don't worry about that. Be glad and be joyful. Why? Because your reward is mega in heaven. It's much. It's much. If you're going to respond rightly as a Christian, then we must think eternally, not temporally. We have to remember what the Apostle Paul told the Corinthian believers about his own life. Paul said this, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, for this momentary, this light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. Why? Because we don't look at the things which are seen. We look at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Uh, Brothers and sisters, we have to have an eternal mindset, not a temporal mindset. If we're going to find that kind of joy and leaping in the day when hatred is launched upon us, You better be looking to glory. You better understand and, and, and internalize the very things that our beloved brother who passed some time ago said to me a couple days before he was to pass. Don't worry about me. I'm going to see Jesus. Paul said this is a momentary light affliction. What what was he talking about? What was going on in his life where he could address it that way? Momentary light affliction. Really, Paul? 2 Corinthians 11, verse 24 through 28. Here's what he said. Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked, a night and a day I have spent in the deep. I've been on frequent journeys, in dangers from rivers, and dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. 
I have been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. You say, man, I don't want that. Paul says, yeah, that was nothing. On top of that, I was a pastor of churches. Apart from such external things, there's a daily pressure on me of concern for all the churches. Paul says, but none of that meant anything to me. Why? Because it was storing up for me an eternal weight of glory. Far beyond comparison to all those things. So we have a great reward because of suffering. Not because we are great, but because the one who gives the reward is great. But also, he says, to be rejoicing. Be glad in that day and leap for joy because you are known by the company you keep. Really? Yeah, look. For in the same way their fathers used to treat the prophets. Listen, you're in good company. Not only do we have a great reward, but our association with the heroes of the past ought to be a motivator for us to endure such hostility with joy. So we don't rejoice in spite of persecutions. We don't sit around and go, woe is me, trying to muster up some kind of joy. No, we rejoice because of our persecution. We realize that in those, when it's for the sake of Christ, we are the most blessed people of all. One writer put it this way, quote, The wounds and the hurts are medals of honor. I like that. The wounds and the hurts for the sake of Christ are medals of honor. That is simply to say that all of the things of our life just simply attest that anything else, we belong to Christ and not the world. We belong to Christ. It's not how it will be for the opposite. Woe to you when all men speak well of you. That can happen. That can happen to the true Christian. But it cannot happen without some kind of compromise. If we're comfortable with and popular with the world that lives according to the spirit of the age, if we're okay with that, comfortable in it, popular with it, then we may ourselves be deceived, thinking that we are in the kingdom of God when in fact we belong to this evil age And we will face its judgment. The Christian is hated, excluded, insulted, and rejected because they stand for Christ. That's why the Christian is blessed. Because of Christ. And our reward is great in heaven And we stand in a great company. Blessed are the poor. Blessed are the hungry. Blessed are the crying. 
Blessed are the hated. Christians are blessed. Beloved, let us live like it. Let us live like it. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for your spirit. Thank you for moving upon the heart, challenging us, shaping us, molding us, helping us understand. Lord, whatever you must do to move us, we would ask that you graciously, compassionately reveal in us what it is we must confess, turn from, run to you, begin to walk as we ought to walk. We know you came to save sinners of which we are. We're thankful that in Christ we have salvation, secure that we have an inheritance in Him that will never fade, never go away, never be diminished in any kind of way. Lord, help us live to that end even when the world hates us. In fact, especially when they hate us. So that You might be magnified and glorified and that we would be able to see you in that day and rejoice with a a rejoicing that confounds all who might see us. And may we gather around one another as a body of Christ, encouraging and coming alongside and helping where help must be so that you would be honored in it all. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.